My house is close to the grade school. It is a steep walk uphill to school from which you can glimpse miles away through the trees, the gray skyline of the city of brotherly love and barely make out the statue of William Penn standing atop the spire of City Hall. After school, I walk down the hill, gravity pulling me to that refuge away from the other children, the clueless teachers, the austere cafeteria workers, and the friendly bald janitor we called Popeye, who wore his sleeves rolled up, exposing a blue tattoo on his upper arm, the image of an anchor wrapped in seaweed. My refuge is on a cul-de-sac in the shape of a Cape Cod house made of brick. It is my enclave, my home, a site of frequent tedium and boredom, but a place that has one thing above all going for it. It is safe. My parents are good and loving people. They take care of us. No one bothers us there. first grade, I have a crush on a blonde-haired girl who was ahead of me in second grade. One day, I follow her home from school, keeping a safe distance. She and a friend skip down Hearth Road, then turn left at Lovell Avenue. I normally turn right at that intersection, but I follow her a little farther away until she peels off and into a brown-shingled bungalow that is larger than our house. I turn around and go down the hill, my footsteps heavy with anguished longing. This girl goes to my church and my school, but I know, even at this innocent age, that I have absolutely zero chance of making progress with her. One year's difference in grade school is an unbridgeable gap, a span of infinite longitude it is as if each grade is a unique alien species in a league of intergalactic worlds and diplomatic relations are icy if they exist at all. The best that can be hoped for is a peaceful coexistence. By the end of the month, my longing withers away and I am pining for another girl. I don't know what neighborhood she lives in. She takes the school bus. I always walk home from school. We live too close for a school bus. My father is always at work and my mother is a homemaker who feels no need to drive me and my sister home. Kids are on their own. Helicopter parents are unheard of. There are no neighborhood watches. I traverse the same route every day, leave school through the heavy blue doors, past the flagpole, cross Penview Avenue, head down Hearth, turn right, and go further down Lovell then turn left to my circular, dead-end, heading-nowhere street. It was at most a ten-minute walk, 
even for little legs. It is a warm Indian summer day in late September. I leave school and walk down Hearth Road. Suddenly, I am being pursued by three kindergartners. They jump me unawares, say something to the effect of, Where are you going, wussy? What do you want? Huh? Can't hear you. I break into a fast walk, then steady trot downhill. I trip on the uneven sidewalk, stumble, trip again, and fall, scraping my knee. My lightweight school briefcase flaps against my hip, winging at a fearful angle. The boys are still coming after me. I reach my street corner and hesitate. I want to run home and escape into the enclave, but I wonder if I should misdirect them. Do I want them to know where I live? I am close to sanctuary, but I don't know what to do. I wheel around to face them, inadvertently swinging my briefcase at them, which makes them stand back momentarily. The briefcase handle snaps, a broken wing dangling from my arm. The tiny lock breaks. My notebooks and papers tumble out. The boys laugh and kick my homework to the curb. I beg them, stop. They call me pussy, shove me down to the cracked sidewalk again. My knee is bleeding profusely. They leer at me, lean over, and hesitate. One of the kids suggests that their mission is accomplished, and growing bored with evil deeds, they peel away, boasting, descending the hill, looking back, laughing all the way. I wait on the corner for them to continue down the hill towards Trout Run until they are out of sight. Touch my knee, stained with maroon-colored blood. The broken briefcase handle feels oily in my hand. I hold the briefcase against my chest and limp to my house, relieved that the ordeal seems to have passed. I have survived the first of what will be a lifetime of humiliations. I hurry up the driveway. The garage door is open. No car inside. I scramble up the concrete steps to the back door and turn the knob. It is locked. I sit on the stoop, dizzy, dabbing my wound with the weekly reader newspaper. Endless minutes pass. I look around, no cars, no people. Just the baking heat of the afternoon, a barking hound dog, and an oppressive suburban silence. It is my introduction to abandonment. Someone has snatched my mother, possibly my whole family, away from me in a moment of greatest need. As I wait, I gaze at the weekly reader. There is a story about a dog named Zip rescued by firefighters. The cartoon depiction of the dog and firemen are inked in red. My blood stain matches the color perfectly. I hear a car rumbling down Lovell and turn the corner 
and watch as my mother's Plymouth station wagon rolls up the driveway. She rushes out to greet me and sees my knee and says how sorry she is. She was at the hairdresser's and thought she would be home in time to meet me. Ashamed, humiliated, sobbing, I lie about the kindergarten bullies, tell her I fell and scraped my knee. She takes me in, sets me on a kitchen chair, and dabs the knee with Bactine. It stings. I want to cry again. She looks flustered, almost panicked. Her coiffed hair looks different to me, shorter, darker, almost unrecognizable. Surely this incident is a precursor of things to come. The litany of mishaps, miscues, misdirections, accidents, diabolical treacheries, breakups, intimidations, and failures seemingly orchestrated to prove to me the poisonous truth that in this world you are on your own, alone despite all pretensions otherwise. Things like trust and loyalty are necessary fictions we tell ourselves to trick ourselves into feeling wanted, safe, less lonely. He was one of the very worst, for he was a demon. One day, he was in very good spirits, for he had made a mirror which had this peculiarity, that everything good and beautiful that was reflected in it shrank together into almost nothing, but that whatever was worthless and looked ugly became prominent and looked worse than ever. most lovely landscape seen in this mirror looked like boiled spinach, and the best people became hideous or stood on their heads and had no bodies. Their faces were so distorted as to be unrecognizable, and a single freckle was shown spread out over nose and mouth. That was very amusing, the demon said. When a good, pious thought passed through any person's mind, these were again shown in the mirror so that the demon chuckled at his artistic invention. Those who visited the goblin school, for he kept the goblin school, declared everywhere that a wonder had been wrought. For now, they asserted, one could see, for the first time, 
how the world and the people in it really looked. Now they wanted to fly up to heaven to sneer and scoff at the angels themselves. The higher they flew with the mirror, the more it grinned. They could scarcely hold it fast. They flew higher and higher. And then the mirror trembled so terribly amid its grinning that it fell down out of their hands to the earth, where it was shattered into a hundred million million and more fragments. This mirror occasioned much more unhappiness than before, for some of the fragments were scarcely so large as a barley corn, and these flew about in the world, and whenever they flew into anyone's eye, they stuck there, and those people saw everything wrongly, or had only eyes for the bad side of a thing, for every little fragment of the mirror had retained the power which the whole glass possessed. A few persons even got a fragment of the mirror into their hearts, and that was terrible indeed, for such a heart became a block of ice. few fragments of the mirror were so large that they were used as window panes, but it was a bad thing to look at one's friends through these panes. Other pieces were made into spectacles, and then it went badly when people put on these spectacles to see rightly and to be just. And then the demon laughed till his paunch shook, for it tickled him so. without some little fragments of glass still floated about in the air. And now we shall hear. I am in sixth grade. Because I am a well-behaved, trustworthy student, they have deputized me as a school safety crossing guard. I am given a silver badge and white canvas belt that goes around the waist and straps across the shoulder. 
They assigned me and my partner to the corner of Hearth Road and Dorman Avenue. We agree to take turns minding the younger kids walking home. They are supposed to wait at the corner for the all clear before crossing. Go ahead, we say, with a mixture of authority and nonchalance. Go ahead. No jaywalking. Go ahead. The kids rarely listen. They despise authority figures and narcs. Other than the occasional homemaker coming home from the store and delivery vehicles, there isn't much to worry about. It's an easy job. So we let them pass and loaf at the corner under a crabapple tree. When the fruit drops off the limbs, we collect the little bombs and throw them at each other until it is time to go home. One morning, while heading up the hill on Hearth Road towards school, I approached the crabapple tree and stopped. From one of the limbs, a dead cat is hanging, a clothesline noosed around its neck. I stare at it, dumbfounded, riveted, stricken. I have never seen a murdered animal like this. That day, the school kids are abuzz about the dead cat. At the end of the day, I'm afraid to pass by it again, but there is no choice. This is the way home from school. I have my job to do. I sling the safety belt on, cross pen view, and try to act casual. I approach the tree. The cat, the rope, are gone. The tree looks normal again, but I will never look at it the same way, and we don't sit under it anymore. No more crabapple wars. Instead, we sit on the curb, backs to the tree, and pick at the crabgrass. We were down dead man's hill, smoking vines like cigarettes, looking through the trashy mags, trying to feel what's coming. Older brothers in late night bars I told you what I feel most And you kept it like a ghost forever
gasoline burning spiral standing underneath the night fighting back with all my might empty cans and charred remains find them in the heat of day on the top of dead men still this is what I know of shame ever Most of the time, my neighborhood is dull and safe. There are many more worse off people in the world. But sometimes, you sense dark edges lurking, shadows and undercurrents. Like the teenage girl a block away who hung herself in her backyard. Or the fathers in sleeveless undershirts at kitchen tables drinking and smoking themselves to death or the pursed lips of mothers afraid to object, afraid to stand up to their husbands. Who knows what other violations of body and spirit there were. One rarely enters the sacrosanct domains of their homes. Only at Halloween, when you go door to door for candy, or when collecting newspapers for the recycling drives, or after snowstorms, when you knock on doors to ask if they want their driveway and sidewalk shoveled. Each house harbors mysterious goings-on. You can never be sure what you will see if you would gain admittance. The glimpses of their private lives leave brief but deep impressions, like splinters you can't see or remove easily. when the snow covers the roads and you have to drive up the hill to get to the shopping center for food and road salt. You have to risk the neighborhood kids and their snowballs lying in wait for you on Lovell Avenue. These are the same kids who fling their tied-together canvas sneakers over telephone lines, who set off firecrackers in the woods in midsummer. It doesn't matter if they know you or not. No car is spared. Everyone is fair game. My father grips the steering wheel and curses under his breath, gasses the Plymouth to gain traction and speed past them as the car spin climbs its way up the hill. Inevitably, a fender, sometimes the windshield, gets splattered with snow. To my knowledge, 
nobody gets in trouble for it. The barbarians are permitted to terrorize you. You grit your teeth and undergo the ordeal. Then it is over. I am in high school. I've fallen hard for a pretty girl who is in the year below me. I've been trying to get to know her. It's hard for a shy type like myself. At least she knows my name. Every now and then, I get a word from her. I'm working up the courage to invite her on a date. The timing is never right. What I don't know at the time and only find out years later by accident is that she used to live a few doors down from the corner where I worked as a safety. I had taken no notice of her before. She had been invisible. Perhaps I had allowed her to cross the street. I pieced together the chronology. She moved across town to a better neighborhood the same year I came upon the dead cat hanging from the tree. Was it her cat? Had she ever been chased home from school like I had that one day? Did kids throw snowballs at her family car like they did at us? I'll never know. We never had an intimate conversation that would have broached a topic like that. I wonder what has become of her. Aside from being chased home from school by bullies, and the hoodlums with their snowballs, and the creepy lives of neighbors, and their dark secrets, and the dead cat hanging from the tree. I have pleasant memories of walking home from school, especially in winter. Some days, when the snow started in the morning, they would dismiss us early, and I would trudge over the virgin snow on the unshoveled sidewalks. The neighborhood sounded different with snow on the ground, you noticed the wind, the way sounds carried, something softer and more isolated. 
Most of all, I remember the walks for the solitary time they gave me. A brief space to be myself and think. Time to process the day. Think about whatever came to mind. Homework. Television shows. Baseball standings. Which book I would order from the weekly reader. Girls. What my mom was cooking for dinner. Clearly, yeah. 
Thanksgiving weekend and someone on social media has organized a meetup of old classmates at a local sports bar. I decide to drive to my hometown and attend the event. I drink enough lager to make the night tolerable. The more we drink, the more we open up. Everyone looks older and fatter, and I can only imagine how awful I look in their eyes. We catch up, talk about what we do for a living our marriages and kids. We reminisce about the old days. To outside observers, it would be stultifying, but it is our past, and I suppose we are entitled to wallow in it. Maybe it is our punishment for sin's past. One of the guys looks vaguely familiar. He is a husky, burly man with straight, longish, dark hair, a large Roman nose, and brown, beady eyes. He tells me he went to my elementary school, graduated a year after me. He's in the sludge business. He removes sludge for a living. He has a truck, lots of equipment, and regales me with terms of art, cataloged in excruciating detail. I learn about muck pellets, weed rollers, tanks, digesters, vacuum trucks, jet vacs, sludge hauling, mega scrapers, oxidized motor oil, soot, harmful contaminants, pea traps and branch lines, augers. I nod my head and pretend to be interested. He won't stop. I want to get away. I tell him it's time to go home. The people I wanted most to reconnect with are having a rollicking good time across the bar from me, but I am trapped. I miss my wife and kid and wonder, how can I escape this place? Why did I come here to talk with people I barely know? I manufacture an excuse and get up to leave. The guy follows me out to the car. We shake hands. He seems to be making an effort to be ingratiating towards me. I don't understand why. I barely knew him. We were in different grades, on different academic tracks. Did we share a gym class, driver's ed? I just don't remember. I wave goodbye and get in my car. I turn the key, wait for the car to warm up. 
and watch him get into his sludge removal truck. It has his name plastered on the door. Flurries start dropping from the black sky. Now I remember him. He was the third boy from the kindergarten posse that chased me home from school and pushed me to the sidewalk. He wasn't the ringleader or the second in command, which is why I forgot him, I suppose. But he was there for sure, the bystander, the enabler, the witness. He watched and let it happen, did nothing to stop it. When the leader laughed, he chimed in. The next day, he sends me a friend request. I ponder it for an hour, then accept it. I go to his profile and learn about his life. He watches hockey, even does refereeing on the side. He's a heavy metal hairband fan. He is really into sludge removal and home improvement projects. I don't react to his post, I just lurk and learn. month later, he drops a late-night post about how sick he feels. The next morning, I log on and read my feed. His friends are posting tributes on his wall. He died in his bedroom overnight. I don't know what to think. I don't know him well enough to post anything. Do I delete him now? Just snuff him out? How long will people keep connecting to his profile? Some of his friends don't realize he's dead, and they say things that invite a response that will never come. That day, a snowstorm blankets the region. The weather forecasters now have names for winter storms. It didn't used to be that way. When it snowed, you hoped the AM news radio station would read your school's closing number over the air and raise your arms in victory when the three-digit number got announced. Then you built snowmen, had snowball fights, made snow angels, shoveled driveways and sidewalks for money. And you would pull the metal saucer up Lovell Avenue and pause at the top of the hill. Then you would push forward, sit in the saucer, and glide down, the wind biting at your cheeks, letting gravity and the sounds of winter take you away. I lace up my heavy boots and overcoat. Where are you going, my wife asked me. I want to do some more shoveling. In the dark? It's a good time. I'll clean the walk and salt it so it won't freeze overnight. Suit yourself. I go out and make quick work of the shoveling. I lean on the shovel and look around. No traffic, no people. The snow is clean and white and twinkles in the moonlight. 
I like the way it collects on the branches of the pine trees. Somewhere down the block, a dog barks. The wind. The glow of warm lamplight in the living room window. The smoke spooling upwards from the chimneys. I close my eyes and wonder. How many more winters do I have left? Make 
Thank you for listening.